Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we are in a series called King Jesus. We are week, I think we are week three. This is week three in the Sermon on the Mount. In your Bible, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters five, six, seven. Uh, but what we've been talking about over the last a couple of weeks is that the Sermon on the Mount needs to be understood with a message, with a purpose. And so the chapters and the verses just kind of help us traverse it. Uh, but really, we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount as one message. And here's the purpose. The purpose of the, king, of the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom breakthrough in the here and now. Matthew chapter four, Jesus' message is all over Galilee before the Sermon on the Mount. And the message was simply this, change your mind about life and God and life in God and how we understand a relationship with God. Change your mind, repent. That's what repent means. It just means change your mind. And he said, for the kingdom of heaven is near or now or present. So the Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom breakthrough in our real life experience. And last week, what we centered uh, into was what Jesus was teaching us in the kind of the second half of Matthew 5 was what his relationship with the, the law is. That was really the objective uh, of the teaching last week. What is Jesus's relationship with the old covenant Mosaic law? And he says it very simply in verse 17 of chapter 5 when he said, I came not to abolish the law. Jesus loves the law. The law is holy and righteous and perfect. Jesus loves the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Another way to translate fulfill is finish the law. How does Jesus finish or fulfill the law? His perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection fulfills and finishes the law on our behalf. Here's what is theologically significant for us to understand in terms of how we are to understand our freedom in Christ. What does freedom in Christ mean? Theologically, Jesus's relationship with the law is also our relationship with the law. I came to fulfill it, to finish it. In Christ, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And I don't know if there's a more simple way that we have in our New Testament than Galatians 6, 14. Paul says this to the church in Rome, for sin shall not be your master because you are, your position, you are. You are not under the law, you are under grace, the new covenant reality of grace in Jesus. Um, last week, a point of emphasis that I gave you guys was the law, the law tells you what to do. And when you don't do it and you can't do it because you're not perfect, the law tells you what to do and then it will rub your nose in it. But grace, grace, the message of grace in Jesus, the unmerited favor of God, it declares to you, it shows you, it tells you who you are in Christ, your position in Christ. The law tells you what to do. Grace tells you who you are. As we get into chapter six today, uh, here, is, here is a deeper, more full understanding of what grace does for us. Certainly grace tells us who we are, but the law can't transform us. The law has no power to transform our lives. Grace tells you who you are and grace transforms you. It shows you who you can become. It will lead you and empower you unto Christ-likeness in your life. That is the emphasis for our time today. Why? Because chapter six, Jesus begins to unpack for us what grace working itself in our hearts and out into our lives actually looks like in our real actual lives. Yes, it tells you who you are and it shows you who you can become as we follow Jesus and we submit to his lordship in our lives. Kingdom breakthrough certainly is about our salvation, certainly, but also it is about our transformation into Christ's likeness as we live as disciples of Christ. I believe this is what Jesus meant in verse 20 of chapter five, when he says to all the people, 
on the mountain that day, on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What does he mean by that? It's kingdom breakthrough. It surpasses it because it's not an outside outside in behavior modification, checking the box of the rules and the laws. It's an internal heart transformation. It tells you who you are. Grace tells you who you are. And then it shows you who you can become. And our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees because it's the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God working in us and through us. Um, authentic transformation is always by God's goodness. Real transformation is always empowered by God's goodness and not by religious posturing and performing. And before we get to our text, I want to um, share with you just a word, a word that's gonna be repeated in Matthew 6 today. And so I wanna spend a little bit of time uh, talking about this, this word because uh, I think it's important to get the context of it before we, before we see it. And the word is hypocrite. And let's think about Greek theater for a moment, right? Herod the Great, New Testament was written in the Greek language. Uh, Greek theater, the word hypocrite literally means an actor under an assumed character. That's what the word means. A hypocrite can be understood as putting on a mask, to put on a play. And this is something that I learned this week in my study. I didn't know this. Uh, It is a term that is used by Jesus alone in the New Testament. Didn't know that. Only Jesus uses the word hypocrite. And he uses it 17 times. In our text today, he will use it three times to talk about religious posturing, performing, acting, putting on masks. Here's some context of Palestine and the day that Jesus was teaching. Uh, Places like Jericho and Jerusalem, the great city Jerusalem, Syria, all these places had these, these theaters where people would put on these plays, these actors would put on these masks and put on these plays. And so when he uses the word hypocrite in this specific sermon, it would be a very vivid illustration for the listeners. They would have very quickly understood what he is talking about. Oh, he's speaking about actors performing on a stage, putting on a mask, putting on a play. They would have understood that very quickly. Um, Real life illustration for us. uh, My son Jackson is 20 He is a junior at Grand Canyon. He's majoring in theater. His uh, sister Ellie is a senior at Fort Collins High School. She is also a thespian. And uh, they are are good actors. They they love the theater. They love putting on their costumes and performing on stage. And they perform. And emphasis of the word, when they are on stage, they are performing. They are acting things out. And I love watching them perform. I thought about putting some pictures up of them when they were in middle school. Jackson was the genie in Aladdin when he was like in eighth grade and his costume was so awesome. And Ellie was the queen of hearts in middle school in Alice in Wonderland. And I thought I would send Spade of the pictures and we'd put them on there. And I thought that would go bad for me if I put a middle school picture of Ellie on the screen and costume for, I don't think that would go good for me as a dad. So I didn't do that. Uh, but the, the point I'm trying to make here is I love watching them in theater. I love watching them perform, but I don't want them to perform their faith in Jesus. And I don't want to do that either. And I don't want you to do that either because religious hypocrisy has no place in the people of God. And religious acting and performing is worthless. It is worthless. Um, And Jesus will help us see uh, that in our text today. So again, Matthew 6 is going to alert us to three real life examples of things that that we would say are virtuous and good, like giving to the needy, and praying, and um, the third one is a fasting. But he's gonna 
teach it in a way and use illustration and example of people who are doing those things in, a, in an acting and in a performing kind of way. And there are, there are, there are three things, there are three uh, places that we can think about when we act hypocritically, there are actually ways that hinder our transformation into Christ-likeness. Hypocrisy hinders uh, growth uh, and, and progress into who we can become as Christ followers. Um, here, is, here are the three things. We're gonna read uh, really every verse this morning. And here are three examples of how um, hypocrisy hinders us. The desire to have the approval of others. First 18 verses. Um, second section, the desire to secure ourselves in our material worth. Like we find our security, we find our hope, our peace, our happiness in our stuff, what we accumulate in our lives. And then thirdly, uh, worry. I was wondering, I was thinking, you know, worry's probably not that relevant to everyone today. So I thought about skipping that over, but just because it's in the Bible, I'm still gonna teach on it. So just bear with me when I get there. I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. I don't know if there's a more relevant topic right now than worry in our lives. So let's um, get into point one as we get there. Verse one to 18, the desire to have approval of others hinders us. Matthew chapter six, Jesus starts by just saying, be careful, be wise, be discerning. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth that they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse five, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the actors and the performers who wear masks. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to the Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, like the people who have no faith in God. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day or give us today as our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we also have have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. A um, couple of points on these verses. The first one uh, is this, doing the right thing, like, I think we would all agree, giving to the needy is a virtuous thing to do. We, can we agree with that? Praying as believers, good thing. Fasting, is, is those are, these are good things. But I think what Jesus is, is teaching about, when we are doing right things for the wrong reasons, uh, that is not actually a work of the empowerment of grace in our lives. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, um, they do what they do to be seen and to be noticed by others to the degree of blowing a trumpet when they're giving to the needy. Doo, doo, doo. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's just like everyone, I'm, I was like, before you give money to the little giving boxes in the back, you know, it's just like everybody, you know, we got to blow a horn so that we can, you know, it's just like, but that's what they were doing. Um, the world's culture 
the world's culture is a self-esteem culture. If we want to know more about self-esteem, just flip the words around, the esteem of self. It's the world's culture to esteem yourself by the things that you do. And here's what the world's culture of self-esteem will do. They'll give you some titles and they'll give you some trophies and they'll invite you to brag about it and give you some ego. The world will even give you a car sticker to stick on your car so that everybody behind you at a traffic light can know how well you did at whatever you got a trophy for. Self-esteem culture. And I just want to say this, and I, and I, I, I put myself among us. I'm just, I'm going to sit here with you. I put myself among us in this conversation. The applause of people for our good behavior and our good works can be pretty enticing sometimes, can it? The temptation for the approval of others uh, can be quite a temptation. But the children of God, the people of God, the disciples of Christ, those who are being transformed and empowered by the grace of God are to have none of this self-esteem, religious, posturing, performing hypocrisy. I wanna share some words that Jesus shares later in Matthew in chapter 23. And he's speaking about the same group of people as he is in Matthew 6, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he said, all of their deeds, everything that they do are for men to see them doing it. And they love the places of honor. They love it. And then he says, but the greatest among you, but you, those who are following me, the greatest among you shall be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Grace tells you who you are and then grace helps you see who you can become. Isn't that a refreshing difference what Jesus says of the people of God? And like, isn't that so, so refreshing to believe and know that I don't have to be shackled anymore by this need to be needed. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. You know what I mean. This, this unhealthy need to be needed so that I feel validated and approved of. It's self-esteem culture. It's the world's self-esteem. I, I get to be liberated by this unhealthy need to be seen and approved of by others. That is such a refreshing breakthrough in our lives. And it's a gift that God gives us by his grace. This is kingdom breakthrough. Understanding and believing and being rooted in the greatest among us are the humble servants. Lord, make me more like that. Make me more like that. The work of grace frees us from the hypocrisy of performing for others for our own approval. Point one, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is not the work of grace. The work of grace transforms us from the inside and we begin to live in the flow of the freedom of not being shackled by seeking the approval of others. Second point, obviously, as we read the passage, um, the Lord's Prayer. So I wanna make some points about how are we to understand the Lord's Prayer. Now, I could give a whole sermon on this. We could actually do a 10-week sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. I'm gonna do it in five minutes and just make a few points for us to consider. The first thing that I want us to understand about the Lord's Prayer is this. This is, we, I don't want us to understand the Lord's Prayer through the lens of this religious ritual and performance. Uh, I played high school basketball at a little farm town in Tennessee and we used to say the Lord's Prayer before every high school basketball game. Anybody, anybody do that in high school? If I tried to lead my freshman boys at Rocky to do that, they probably would fire me today here. But we would do the Lord's Prayer before every game. And it sounded a little bit like this. We'd be in the middle, we'd get on a knee. And we go, our Father, God in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, it will be done. Earth is in heaven. Here's the day of our life. Please, my mistakes, deliver us For that's the kingdom, power, glory, for And I am I'm dead serious. That's how it went. 
And I was just, I was remembering that this week and I was cackling, I was laughing because it was this, I don't know, did we think it was like some magic formula? You know, like it wasn't transformative, I'll say that. It was formulaic. And I just wanna say the Lord's Prayer is not a magic formula, church. I think the Lord's Prayer it gives us some, um, some principles, some, some, a pattern of how we can engage God in an authentic way. Like, um, here are some ingredients of the Lord's Prayer, if you will. Um, praising God. Just praising God. I like that. Trusting in God's will in our lives. So praying and like, God, help, help us trust your will in our lives. Receiving forgiveness and offering forgiveness to people. Deliverance in spiritual warfare. These are beautiful, wonderful examples, principles of how we can understand how to address God when we, we pray. And that's the second point, when we pray. It's interesting, when we look at the Lord's Prayer, I think most of us see the Lord's Prayer as something that we do as individuals, but the Lord's Prayer is actually communal. The you, when you pray, the you is plural. And he's talking to the disciples, the people. And so it's to be understood as a communal way for us to pray together. I just told you I'm from the South, it would be it would sound like this, like to, to make sure somebody knew if I was preaching in the South, I'd see like, now when y'all pray, pray this way. Or it might be like, if I really wanted to emphasize the plurality of it in the South, I might say, now all y'all, all y'all. Now all, Y apostrophe, A-L-L, all y'all. It's plural. I mean, that's the point. This is a communal prayer. And here's the point. What's the point of the sermon, the point of the sermon is kingdom advancement in the here and now. So we, we pray for a kingdom advancement in this world, in the here and now. I would summarize for us the Lord's Prayer this way based on these three points. The Lord's Prayer is teaching disciples a communal prayer about advancing his kingdom in the present reality of our lives. Oftentimes I think we look at the Lord's Prayer and we use it as a way to solve individual problems in our own life, but the Lord's Prayer is communal and it's about the advancement of the kingdom of God here and now. And I think it's important for us to see it that way. Uh, fourth point on the Lord's Prayer is this. It's interesting when we use the Lord's Prayer. Here's how we ended it in high school basketball. It ends in verse 13, but deliver us from the evil one. And then we would say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Like we, add, we added that. But that's not, that's not verses 14 and 15. We didn't add verse 14 and 15 because verse 14 and 15 trips us up a little bit, if we're honest. Let's, just, let's read 14 and 15 together again. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. Um, what, what do we do with these verses, right? <laughs> What do we do with, it trips us up. And I think it trips us up because if we're honest, we probably get to this place. Hold on. Is, is Jesus saying that my eternal destiny, that my salvation is dependent on my forgiving people, right? I mean, we pull that thing, we read those few verses, and we go, whew, that, that's confusing. So I wanna, uh, I wanna talk about this for a minute. First and foremost, let me say this. We read Scripture in its context, and we interpret Scripture with Scripture. 
We always, we always want to understand that. When we come to a verse and we go, is that teaching a conditional salvation? Scripture interprets Scripture and it does not contradict. So let me say first and foremost, Matthew 6, I do not believe in any way, is teaching that our eternal destiny is based on our ability to forgive people for the hurt, the harm, the abuse, the wrong that they have done to us. The Bible is crystal clear over and over and over again that God pardons sin by his grace alone based on his work on Calvary for us. Not by man's actions. Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone. And that our right standing, our righteousness, our right standing before God is based on one thing and one thing only, the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. His blood has forgiven us, amen? But still, Swain, what do we do with Matthew 6, 14 and 15? Here's some perspectives out there. And there's a lot of stuff out there, just so you know. But here are three perspectives on verses 14 and 15. Um, one perspective is this is pre-cross. Jesus came to not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he inaugurated the new covenant of grace at the cross of Calvary. So the blood of Christ inaugurated, ended the old covenant and established the new. And so there are some perspectives on this. Jesus obviously is teaching before the cross. So this is pre cross. And so uh, the conditional aspect of this um, makes sense that way because it's pre-inauguration of the new covenant. Interesting perspective. Uh, and I'm not one to sway you one way or the other on that, but I just go, that's interesting perspective. Here's another one. Our relationship with God is dis disrupted if we refuse to pardon those who have hurt, harmed, abused wronged us. Where there is a lack of forgiveness in our lives, resentment and bitterness grows. Would you guys agree with that? Where there is a lack of forgiveness in our lives, resentment and bitterness grows. And where bitterness and resentment grows, relationships are always disrupted to the degree that our relationship with God can even be disrupted by our lack of forgiveness. Third perspective, anyone who refuses to forgive others is demonstrating that he or she has not truly received Christ's forgiveness for themselves. It would be, this perspective would be similar to uh, James, the book of James, Jesus' half-brother, disciple, when he writes in the book of James, faith without works is dead, right? This would be a similar reality to that Perspective, And I am not going to try to sway you in one of these three. Uh, I'm just telling you what's out there. What I want to say to you this morning is this. Wherever you land, wherever we land, we must strongly deny that salvation is dependent on anything that we do. Amen? It is, not, it is only dependent on Jesus and the work of the cross for us. And also, wherever we land, the exhortation of Scripture is very clear. God has forgiven us, and we are called to forgive others, period. We wrestled with this on Thursday morning in our men's group. And uh, my friend Lucas Smith had this perspective and really settled beautifully with me. Because the reality is this, forgiveness, forgiving others isn't easy, is it? Ah, it is not. I heard this once about forgiveness. Um, withholding forgiveness and owning bitterness and resentment is like swallowing poison and hoping that it kills someone else, but it's really killing our own souls. But the truth of the matter is this. Forgiving people that have harmed, abused, wronged, that is, that is a supernatural work of God. And Lucas's perspective was this. He just said, you know, he goes, I just have to believe because Jesus made this statement. 
that somehow, some way, in, in our growth as believers, that God, by His grace, by His Holy Spirit, will lead us there somehow, some way, someday. And today may not be that day, but somehow, some way, God will lead us there. And I appreciated that perspective. Here's a word from Paul. Last thing I'll say on this, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. The only, the only way we have any opportunity to make some steps toward the exhortation of Jesus in verses 14 and 15 is to believe anew, to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day that God has radically forgiven us, wholly, completely forgiven us. And because that is true, and, and that is the only way I can possibly step into the release of bitterness and resentment and trust God to forgive others. But I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, uh, but I believe the heart of God is to bring healing to our lives, even in those, even in those places. Um, second point of the morning, verses 19 to 24, what hinders a grace transformation in our lives? Seeking the approval of others. Secondly, the desire to secure ourselves by material wealth hinders us. Let's read Verses 19 to 24, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eyes of the lamp of the body if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one, and he's talking about, he's talking about storing up for ourselves treasures on the earth. It leads to darkness, blindness. And then he says, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is about our stuff, right? It's about material possessions and our stuff. Some questions to consider. Uh, what do you truly treasure? At the very core of it, what do you truly treasure in your life? The things of the earth or the things of heaven's kingdom? Like who is your master? Is, is money your master? Is material stuff your master or is God, I don't believe that Jesus is saying here, don't have possessions. Like it's wrong to have possessions. I don't believe that that's what he's saying here at all. I think what he's saying is, look, just don't be ruled by it. Don't be, don't be overmastered by your stuff because it's temporary. And what is eternal is God's kingdom in us. What do we trust in? Do we trust in our circumstances? Do we trust in our stuff? Or do we trust in the sovereignty of God? Like, is your soul at rest today? Can you say that? Is your soul at rest today? Or are you stricken with anxiety and worry and fear? And so I'm running around like people who don't know God and who don't have faith in God trying to secure up my life so that I think I'm okay. And I'm storing up for myself treasures on the earth. Grace tells you who you are. And then it tells you who you can become. And I believe what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter six is you can become truly a person of rest and peace, no matter what the circumstances are. A person who does not worry because they trust in God's sovereignty. Worry hinders us. Now this is a place where I don't think this is relevant for any of us, but I'm gonna read it anyway because it's in the Bible. Therefore, we see a therefore in the Bible, we ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? He had just said, he had just said, 
Don't store up for yourselves treasures on the earth. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And if you do that, you will have rest. And he goes, therefore, I tell you, because, because of the sovereignty of God, do not worry, exhortation, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? In other words, like, what do you think all this worry is actually going to do for you? What's it going to give you? Rhetorical question, not a whole lot. Would you, would you be willing to say that anxiety just gives birth to more anxiety? It just feeds on itself. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon and all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Solomon was the richest person that had everything that the people listening could have imagined. It would be like us thinking about who is the richest person in the world today. It's like, oh, he, that guy's taken care of. That, that lady's taken care of. That's the context here with Solomon. Not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these, one of, like a lily of the field. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31, so do not worry. Second time, he said it in verse 25, he's saying it again in 31. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, the people who don't have faith in God. They are so frantic in their worry. They're running around, panic-stricken, trying to figure out how they're gonna be okay. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way. Grace tells you who you are and it tells you who you can become. The pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Verse 33, Matthew 6, 33, pretty popular verse that some of us probably memorized when we were growing up in church. I know I did. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Whew. I, this is an important passage, but... Let's just be honest. That, ain't, that is not easy. That is not easy. Because in, in my life and maybe in your life, we would say, but Jesus, you don't, you don't understand. There's so much unknown in my life. And right now, financially, things are so uncertain for me or for my family. I, I know, I know what you need before you even know to ask me for it. I, I will provide for you. I will provide for you. But Jesus, I struggle in my faith right now and the life, I don't know if you know what's going on, Jesus, but we're in a worldwide pandemic right now. I don't know if you've been reading the news or social media, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the world and it, the circumstances of all of it is so worrisome to me, and people are so divided about all of it, and the church is divided about, and I'm so worried. I know, I know. I'm still telling you, do not worry. Seek me first. I know your circumstances and your needs. But Jesus, the future, my future, my future, like, am I gonna have a spouse? Am I gonna be able to have children one day, my job, my, my health, people that I love. I, I, know, I know that life is temporary and I know that I'm mortal and I know that unless you come back first, like I'm gonna 
pass away from this life to the next life and I'm overcome by fear about that. I know, I know, I know you. Do not worry about tomorrow. Stay present with me here. Stay present with me here. Look in my eyes. Stay present with me here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a question that I don't even wanna ask of myself, but I believe it's the question of the second half of Matthew 6. And so I wanna be faithful as the teacher of God's word to invite you into this, but it is challenging. Have you ever considered that it is possible for you not to worry about your life? I believe that's what Jesus is inviting us to trust him with. And I will tell you that yesterday, there was a situation that happened in my own family and Lindsay calls me and she needed me to talk her off of the panic train because we didn't know where Brennan was. And I needed somebody else to talk me off the panic train because she's 12 and I don't know where she is. And I'm telling you, that is not a good place to be. And I literally had this sermon right here because I'd been in it all week and I am fighting. I am fighting against hell in the moment. Some things come, she's fine by the way. She's biking around the neighborhood and she wasn't at the park that she needed to be at for the pickup. But sometimes things say, come out of nowhere, don't they? And sometimes it's just life. It's just, oh my, it's so worrisome. Over, it's wave after wave after wave. Here's the literal definition of anxiety. It means to be divided or be pulled apart into pieces. That's what the word means. When he says, do not worry, this is what he's talking about. And who wants you to live this way? Who wants you to operate this way? The Lord of glory, Jesus, or the enemy of your soul? The enemy of your soul wants you to live this way. And many of us, you guys, I know this is true. Many of us, we, we struggle with anxiety about things that we literally have zero control over. <laughs> and again, the only thing that anxiety can give you is more anxiety. Who among you thinks that worrying about this is gonna do anything for you? And even if we have some semblance of some kind of control over it, the exhortation of Matthew 6 is still the same. Do not worry about your life, child. And in the place of his anxiety... Here's what Jesus gives us, shalom. We watched the um, Christmas Chosen special last night at the theater at Timberline. And if you know the show, The Chosen, it's like a, they're just, it's a Christmas special. And there's a lot of music in it. And there's uh, these monologues that are incredible. And there's about a 30 minute um, story of the nativity. That's pretty powerful. High recommendation. Go watch it. It's really, it's really awesome. But in one of the monologues, um, one of the female actresses makes this statement about the word shalom. And she said, I think it's the most important word in all of the universe. And I, I think I agree. Here's what shalom means. Not to be divided, but to be healed, to be whole, to be complete. Jesus is our Prince of Shalom. Jesus wants you at rest. And here is a way the people of God in the midst of really worrisome things that come out of nowhere, but also just worrisome realities about our lives that feels like wave after wave after wave. Here is how we are empowered with rest. And it is the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty 
brings us to a place of rest. And Jesus says this, seek me first, seek me first. And all these things, don't run around like the people who don't have faith in me seeking to figure out all these things. Seek me first and all these things will be added unto you as well. I know what you need before you need it. I know what you need before you ask it. You are not forgotten. And I, when I say you, I don't mean plural, I mean, I mean individually. I wish I could look at every single person in the room. You are not forgotten. You are not. You are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. You know, like, you're not forgotten, Austin. Katie, you're not forgotten. Andy, you're not forgotten. It's, it's powerful, isn't it? Odell's, you're not forgotten. Your story's not forgotten. Stoffer's not forgotten. Kelly, you're not forgotten. You know what I mean? It's, oh, oh. I literally wish I could do the whole room. Carl, you're not forgotten. You're not forgotten. Your circumstances are not forgotten. Your pain is not forgotten. Our faith in Jesus speaks to our anxiety and it has the power. Our faith in Jesus has the power to root it out of our lives. Jesus wouldn't give us an exhortation, do not worry, if he didn't give us the power to do it. That would be unkind. Would you agree with that? That he calls you not to worry and then he doesn't empower you to actually, that would be unkind. And Jesus is a friend. And he's the Lord of glory and he loves you and he empowers us. So I have to believe that we can grow there. Grace tells you who you are and then it promises you who you can become. Your faith, your faith is something that can grow. Do you believe that? It's like muscles, like muscles grow under what? Under tension. Guess how our faith grows? Under tension. Faith is the assurance of God's goodness and provision always, the sovereignty of God, clinging, clinging to what God reveals himself to be to us. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Sometimes I don't even have enough faith to cling to it. Am I right? I, my faith, I don't. So I want to give you this, this thought. Sometimes you're barely holding on. Some of you here in this room, you're barely holding on. Some of you aren't holding on. And it's a miracle that you showed up here this morning. Hallelujah for the supernatural and miraculous work of God. We are not saved. You are not saved by the quality of your faith. You are saved and rescued by the object of your faith, Jesus Christ the Lord. Faith is holding on to Jesus, but more so I believe in our lives, it's knowing that even, even if I let go, Jesus does not let go of us. The way to strengthen our faith under tension in worry is not through your self-effort, but to focus more and more on the object of our faith, Jesus. So let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So that we could say to any storm, any situation, I, I will seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. I will. I'm holding on. Lord, I've let go, but I believe you're holding on to me. I will trust God that all these things will be given to me as well. I will not worry about tomorrow. I will not worry about my life. I will trust in the name of the Lord, my God. It is well with my soul. 
worship team, you guys can come back up. Um, I would encourage you guys to take your families, your friends, go, go to the chosen thing. It's in theaters till the 10th. But also, uh, perhaps if today's message is really like centering in on something for you personally, I might encourage you to watch Prince Caspian this afternoon. Chronicles of Narnia, right? Lucy, Aslan. Aslan is Jesus, the lion in the story. Prince Caspian. Lucy says this, Aslan, you're bigger. You've grown, you're bigger. And Aslan said this, that is because you are older, little one. And then Lucy responds, not because you are, not because you're actually bigger. And then Aslan says this, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Let's pray. Lord, we wanna grow in believing in your sovereignty so that we can truly find healing for our anxiety and see shalom manifest in our life. And I, I just wanna say, Lord, that I, I recognize the worry, the grief, the trauma, the pain, the struggle that is in this room. I just pray over those stories that your son, your daughter, your children would believe that you see them. And I pray that we would look to you with eyes of whatever faith we have we would believe in faith that you are holding on to us and that we can have rest always because you are the sovereign Lord of glory, the God of all comfort, the God of all grace, and that we would be rooted and grounded in these truths that bring us to freedom and hope and joy and peace in our lives, in our real, actual lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.